The Water Values Podcast, Session 150. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. Hope you're all having a great start to summer. Uh, I'm about to enjoy a little bit of summer too, so I'm going to be taking July off. So no podcasts after this one until August. So uh, enjoy this one. It's a great opportunity to catch up on some back podcasts uh, to the extent you uh, may have missed a couple. Um, before we get into this great interview, today's a fantastic interview. Manny Teodoro, associate professor at Texas A&M, who uh, we're going to speak with about on uh, water governance, uh, decoupling, and a lot of other issues. I mean, he he explains it very well. You're going to love this interview with Manny. Um, but before we get to that, just like always, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, we get we picked up another five star uh, rating on Apple Podcasts, so thank you very much for that. And again, we'll go back through some of these uh, international reviews that were left on Apple Podcasts that I just found out about. Again, these are on Chartable dot com. Uh, Ian underscore Rock Soup via Apple Podcast Canada says, "Love the podcast and the diversity of interviews. I work in one small piece of the water industry and like hearing about the many different things other people are doing. Great content. Please turn up the volume." Um, yes, volume issues. Uh, hopefully that's been resolved because we've been running the, uh, running the audio through some, uh, equalization software, some normalization software, uh, since the first part of this year. So hopefully those of you who've had volume issues that's been resolved. If not, please let me know. Uh, and Ian underscore rock soup. Thank you very much for the great, uh, the five-star rating and the great review. Um, Indigo X via Apple Podcasts in Canada also says friendly, professional, and on point. Five-star lineup of speakers on all things water. Balanced, informed point of view. Nice intro by his daughter, Sarah. Sarah loves it when you do that. Uh, Reminding us why we should care about water. So Indigo X, thank you very much. Really appreciate the rating and review. And uh, we'll save some of the rest of those uh, international rating and reviews for for other podcasts. It's about time to get into this great interview with Manny. Uh, One other thing, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Himalaya now, um, also CastBox. You can find us there. Uh, Please uh, consider leaving ratings and reviews on those uh, outlets as well. And if you want to financially support the podcast, any denomination helps uh, go to the Water Values Podcast. Scroll down a little bit, com, thewatervalues.com, and scroll down a little bit. Uh, you'll see the PayPal button. You can click on it and donate in any denomination. Uh, it's greatly appreciated and help keeps the podcast running, help keep, helps keep the valves open and the water flowing. Uh, with that, let's get to our great interview with Manny Teodoro. You're really going to love this one. So open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Manny, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. For starters here, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Yeah, sure. I am a professor of political science at Texas A&M, and uh, I think like most people, I grew up dreaming about analyzing water uh, infrastructure finance and development. You know, as a child, I used to <laughs> dream of 
because of values and and um, plant capacity and these sorts of things. No, it, like a lot of people, I think I came into this field by accident. Um, I was always interested in urban policy issues and politics uh, and economics generally. When I was uh, running an MPA at, at Cornell, my advisor was a fellow named Dick Schuler, who was a former New York State Public Services Commissioner. And he was both an economist and engineer. He was he was my advisor. I took a lot of courses with him, worked closely with him on my thesis. And every example that he used in the courses that he led uh, were utilities. And so I learned a lot about utilities uh, from, from Professor Schuler, who just passed away earlier this year. Uh, he sort of got me into utilities. When I finished my MPA, I was looking for a job, and I ended up working with a consulting firm in the Pacific Northwest that did water utility finance work. And so I really kind of got hooked into it that way. And the more I got involved in the water sector, the more fascinated I was with it. I think it's just such such an interesting, vibrant, and terribly, terribly important field. I sort of stuck with it my my whole career, even as I continued to work on other areas of politics, policy, and administration. I've always come back to water, uh, water, sewer, storm water. The whole issue, a uh, whole set of issues are, are just so important and so interesting, uh, a fruitful field of study and a, and a place where I feel like work really matters. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with you. That's kind of how I feel about it. Uh, what, what do you see as kind of the big issues uh, that, that keep drawing your attention or catching your eye in the water sector? Gosh, it's, it's hard to know where to start or to end with a question <laughs> like that because one, one thing that's so fascinating about water is no matter what, what kind of facet of – of, uh, of, of the business you're interested in, there are almost endless questions. I mean, if you work on the technical side, of course, there's a lot of interesting challenges there. But in addition to the financial questions and, and sort of structural and governance questions, there are there are 50,000 community water systems in the United States. No matter what you're interested in, there's something going on there. So, you know, if I, the way I sort of describe myself to people is I look, I'm a social scientist interested in water utilities. If it's economics, if it's finance, if it's public opinion, if it's public perceptions, if it's governance, if it's you know, any of these questions are interesting to me, and I'm sort of willing to take any analytical or theoretical approach uh, to the study of these issues. Awesome. So, well, well let's stop. You're a, uh, a political scientist, right? So um, let's, let's start in with the politics of water rates uh, and, and kind of how that relates to governance. Can you talk a little about, about those issues? Sure. Well, uh, people tend to think about water rates, at least I should say now. Uh, present day, people tend to think about water rates the same way they think about taxes, which is low is good, high is bad, right? That That's kind of the, the, the simplistic uh, approach to it. Um, you know, we're, we're, there's a lot of interesting ways to think about water rates, and I think it's used, one of the useful ways to think about it is to compare water to energy. So there are a lot of interesting similarities and differences between the, the energy sector and the water sector, but one of those is rate making. In the United States, 85% of Americans get their electrical utilities from the private sector uh, and about 15% from the public. And that ratio is almost exactly opposite for water. Most Americans get their drinking water from a public uh, agency 
and uh, about 15% get from an investor-owned private system. And that's where we can learn some interesting things about the politics of rate making. Uh, what, what we see on average across the country is that rates are lower in the public sector, but we also tend to see investment is lower in, in the public sector. Uh, so you, these things tend to go together. Uh, the, we, there's a lot of evidence that institutional structure affects, you know, political institutional structure affects uh, rates that a public opinion affects rates. There's been some interesting work recently that shows partisanship affects rates. So there are all kinds of uh, political effects. Rate making is very much a political phenomenon, uh, every bit as much as it is a, an economic or, or technical phenomenon. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. You know, there, there's um, a community around where I live where uh, the, the, they never raise the rates because the mayor that raises the rates always gets voted out in the very next election. Um, and so I, I, I want to go back to the, uh, you identified the, the electric sector versus the uh, water sector and, and kind of noted that the, the, the percentage of public ownership is essentially reversed in each of those, right? So w what do you think is the, you know, the underlying reasons for that? Uh, for for why that split occurs, you know I don't really know. There's been a little bit of research on it, and I and I don't know the the answer to that question. I suspect it has mostly to do with the just the evolution, the history of those two sectors in our country. But I I really don't know why it's evolved that way. Uh, I do know those ratios have important um, important effects on the way that utilities are run. Fair enough. So um, let's let's move on to some of the issues in the public sector rate making. As as a political scientist, what causes uh, you know kind of the, the what you've described as the low investment, low rates? I mean, and do are low rates necessarily a good thing uh, when when you're talking about water rates? Sure. So one of the things that, that uh, I think is fascinating about water rates and the politics of water rates or the politics of water generally is that uh, politics, uh, political investments generally have to do with credit claiming opportunities. Politicians like to claim credit for things and avoid blame for things. That should not surprise anyone, and it's not a bad thing. That's kind of the way democracy works, right? Voters like like good things, dislike bad things. Uh, and so politicians respond rationally to that behavior. 100, 150 years ago, when most Americans did not have indoor drinking water service, did not have sanitary sewer service, that was a tremendous opportunity for politicians to make investments in those systems, and voters were happy to pay for them. You know, when you are accustomed to living with a hand pump in the middle of the village and using an outhouse behind your home, the idea of potable drinking water delivered to a tap in your home and a flush toilet is a, is a miracle. And, and people would be happy to vote for and pay, vote for those politicians and pay their rates. Fast forward 100 years, we've now had a few generations of Americans who are accustomed to these services in their day-to-day -day life and, and take them for granted. So drinking water is now assumed to, to be there. Uh, sanitary sewers are assumed to be there. And so it is no longer a credit-claiming opportunity for a politician. 
So then the, cha- the, the, poli- the political calculation changes. Now the politician is no longer thinking about an opportunity to claim credit. Now he or she is thinking about blame because voters are accustomed to receiving these services at a fairly low rate. When it comes time to reinvest in that system or upgrade that system or expand that system, those things are costly. And so that's going to require raising a rate. Well, from the customer's perspective, read the voter's perspective, there doesn't seem to be much significant benefit for what feels like a significant increase in price. So the politician worries about being blamed for rate increases. That changes the political game from credit claiming to blame avoidance. If credit claiming is my goal, then I want to make a big splashy investment and claim credit for a good thing that I brought to my community. If blame avoidance is my game, then what I'm really worried about is getting blamed for a rate increase or alternatively being blamed for some kind of a terrible public health disaster that occurs because we didn't invest in the water system. The thing is, the probability that a disaster will occur at any given moment is very, very, very low, right? The chance that I'm going to be mayor when the Flint water crisis happens is pretty low. So the blame avoidance game says, well, gosh, if I can keep rates low, then I know I won't be blamed for raising rates. And the probability that the system will have a catastrophic disaster while I'm in office, those chances are pretty low. It's probably going to happen on my successor's watch, not my own. So it becomes this game of putting things off and putting things off and putting things off and then hoping the disaster doesn't happen on my watch. I think that's why we end up with this combination of low rates and low investment levels. And yes, Dave, we should absolutely be concerned about rates being too low for too long. When I used to be a full-time rate consultant, I used to hear politicians brag about not raising their rates. Our rates haven't gone up in 10 years, they'd say, like that was a good thing. And sure, it would be a good thing if you were managing to maintain quality and adequate investment levels for that entire 10 years, but the odds are that you probably weren't doing that. So yeah, we should be just as concerned about rates staying too low for too long as we are about rates going too high. Sure. Where, where do you see the tipping point? When are customers going to, to realize that, hey, we need to invest in our systems in order to have safe, clean drinking water? Because we have seen some of these disasters. We've seen Flint. We've seen uh, the one in Ohio. Uh, the Washington Post recently did uh, a piece on the high cost of clean drinking water, and they cited Kentucky and a lot of the kind of the straight pipes. Uh, that situation, I mean, wh- wh- is there a tipping point for for the American population's education where it'll become a good thing to actually, you know, raise rates to demonstrate you're taking care of the system? Yeah. I, I, so I suspect such, an, such a point exists. We don't have the data right now to identify what that point is. However, I do think that the key to improving – public investments in water infrastructure is turning it into a credit claiming opportunity again. We need to find ways to make it 
possible for politicians to see a direct connection between the rate increase and some good that they're providing for the public. So we need to find ways to show that a dollar spent on infrastructure equals some improvement in people's lives, either because we've got an improved environmental quality, maybe people aren't getting as sick as often, um, maybe people, so and that, that translates into fewer days missed from school and work. Uh, maybe it's, it's a way of showing that we improve economic performance. You know, the, there are a lot of things that we can do to show the benefits. And so rate increases are not always framed in terms of bad things that are happening to customers, but rather good things that uh, local governments are doing for customers. Sure. I, I, I agree with that. I think it's really hard, though, to, to engage in that educational exercise with your, your customers um, it, because it takes a lot more effort. And I think the, the option of, as you indicated, blame avoidance becomes it, – it's just, it's just the path, the path of least resistance almost. Of course. And that's yeah. why we need, we need to have investments in, in research on, on some of these things. You know, I, I don't think we invest enough in – of course, I have an interest in saying we don't invest <laughs> enough in the social science of water. But we really don't invest enough in the social science of water. Look, we need to be able to trace the relationships between the political decisions that drive investments and the outcomes for public health and economic growth. Right. If we can do those things, now we have an opportunity to turn uh, a, an investment decision into a credit claiming opportunity for a politician. Right. Right. So, so we've we've covered this pretty pretty well, I think, uh, in in the time we've allotted to it on public versus private public sector blame avoidance versus credit claiming. Yeah. What about what about the private sector? What, what kind of uh, are the, the triggers for, for private sector investment in, and I, I think this is obvious, but what are the triggers for private sector investment in water utilities? So in, pri in the private sector, when we're talking about investor-owned utilities, they operate under an entirely different governance model from public sector. So the private sector, as your listeners probably know, uh, are uh, private investor-owned utilities are regulated by public utilities commissions uh, that are organized at the state level. Uh, it, private, private utilities and public utilities are all uh, natural monopolies. So they, if, it were, if they were allowed to set their rates on their own, they would set those rates inefficiently high. We know that, so we've set up regulatory systems. And state regulatory commissions have to approve the rates that private utilities uh, set for their customers. Those uh, rates have to be based on cost of service, the cost of providing the service plus a reasonable rate of return. Now, the cost of providing the service excuse me, is a function of the investment that the private utility makes in the system. So here, the incentive is just the opposite from the public sector. If in the public sector, the incentive is to put off in, uh, investments, in the private sector, the general incentive is to invest, invest, invest. So invest more in the system. The more you invest in the system, the higher your rate base is, the more you can charge your customers, and the more revenue you bring in, it's easier to grow, right? That's, that's the incentive for the private sector. 
And that so in a lot of cases, what the public utilities commissions are doing is guarding against inefficient overinvestment. So if there's a perverse incentive in the public sector to underinvest, the perverse incentive in the private sector is to overinvest. So they invest in some senses, and there's a danger that they're going to invest too much. So one of the reasons we have these public utilities commissions is that the utilities commission can scrutinize those investments and say, hey, I don't, I don't know that you really need that uh, triple redundant system. Maybe a double redundant system would be fine. You know, that's the sort of uh, the sort of decision that a, a a public utilities commission will make. As a consequence, private sector rates on average are higher. Those prices are higher. On the other hand, they also have a significantly better uh, regulatory compliance record, and that's uh, that's just a, a got to be a function uh, of these investments at some level. Yeah, so you know, there's been a lot of talk about private sector, uh, you know, privatization of, of utilities. There's there's been a number of examples, uh, especially in states with fair market value legislation. Um, and do you, do you see fair market value legislation? Could you, first off, I think we ought to describe what fair market value legislation is. Can you, can you kind of run through that real quick? You know, you're probably more qualified. (laughs) Well, so, so I'll just give the thumbnail. So fair market value legislation is, uh, legislation that authorizes the privately held utility to acquire a municipal system at its fair market value rather than at original cost. Really what it's trying to do, I think, is to get systems that, um, that are maybe not as efficiently run as the private sector to get the, to give them and those the owners of those systems an incentive to cash out because if if they're only receiving original cost they may not sell it it may not be high enough um, and so in, in ter- so fair market value legislation what it's going to do right is increase that rate base increase the investment that the private sector utility uh, has made, and therefore the rates are going to be higher. Do you have any thoughts on how that's going to impact uh, this this split between public and private sector uh, utility ownership? Sure. Well, it's it's going to create a greater incentive, as you suggested, to to privatize for municipal systems to sell their utilities to a private sector investor. And in some cases, uh, that can have salutary effects for public health and and, um, efficient utility service. In other cases, maybe not so much. So this can play out in in a couple of different ways. For utilities that are struggling, either financially or from a management perspective, maybe they're poorly managed, maybe from a performance and investment perspective, they haven't done well. I think there's tremendous opportunity for investor-owned utilities to step into those situations and really help uh, communities by by acquiring those systems, operating them with a higher level of human capital, operating them more effectively, maybe more efficiently, uh, but certainly uh, more effectively, and with greater compliance uh, with with both environmental safety and and, um, and, and financial regulations. So those are the, the potentially good things. The thing to worry a little bit about that about this possibility is that we could create incentives for local officials to uh, to to sell otherwise perfectly fine systems. 
you know, one of the situations that I've been following from afar, I think is fascinating, is in Jacksonville. Uh, JEA, which is Jacksonville's uh, combined water and, and energy utility, uh, has a pretty well-run utility. It's pretty well-run, um, pretty pretty sound financially, uh, well-administered, strong environmental compliance record. And off and on over the years, there have been discussions about selling that utility. It's a municipally owned uh, utility, and there have been discussions about selling it. And in that case, it's not because of poor performance, but rather back to a credit claiming opportunity. It gives a politician a very, very valuable asset to sell. And so it could be the case that some municipalities that actually have pretty good utilities may end up selling them just for the opportunity to grab a windfall and use that to pay for other things, you know, whether that's for um, pension backlogs or uh, perhaps for some other major uh, public investment they'd like to make. Maybe you want to build a ballpark. Well, one way you can do that is sell your water utility, and you can build a ballpark. You know, this is the sort of thing that I think maybe creates a little bit of a perverse incentive that way. We've yet to see how it'll all play out. In general, the best opportunities from a public good perspective are to uh, make it easier for smaller, medium-sized, failing, or struggling systems to be acquired by uh, professionally run investment uh, investor-owned firms. Yeah. So am I, am I, you know, getting from you maybe a safeguard that ought to be in fair market value legislation, something to the effect of um, uh, limitations on, on the use of the proceeds from the sale of a, of a municipally owned utility or uh, do, do you think, are there ways to kind of help uh, guard against some of the dangers you've identified in that fair market value legislation? Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure, and and I haven't I haven't given this any serious thought, Dave. Um, so I, I'm I'm reluctant to say. Uh, I, I think maybe there could be. On the other hand, if it's a, you know, these are these are local governments that uh, have duly elected officials. They own assets. If they want to sell them, I'm not sure we should restrict them from doing so. Uh, I, I just question the wisdom of the decision uh, in some cases, maybe not so much the, the legality or whether they, they should, whether we should restrict them in some way. Right, right. Well, it's food for thought. Maybe, uh, maybe a future conversation we can, we can dig into that. Um, let's, let's talk about what's going to come out on the other end of, of this, this conversation in terms of rates is, is decoupling um, and water rate adjustments. Now, can, first off, it's been a while since we've had a conversation on this uh, podcast about rate decoupling. Can you kind of give us a, a primer on what decoupling is? Decoupling is a separation of the revenue that a utility earns from the volume of the product or service that it provides. So in the case of water, decoupling means that the revenue that the utility receives is not perfectly related to the volume of water that it sells. Right, and that's what we mean to decouple. Um, you know, it, you're, you're separating the revenue earned from the volume sold. Right, and and the concept behind it, in, at least in part, is that you ought to reward the utility for quality of service rather than just because it sold more water or more electricity or treated more sewage. That. that well, that's it's it. quality of service, and it's also conservation. Uh, the concept of, of 
decoupling came out of the energy sector, and it was really developed in the 1970s during the energy crisis during that time, and decoupling became more and more popular. And the, the, the main reason for it was that if you make revenue purely a function of the amount of electricity sold, there's a strong incentive for the utility to sell lots and lots and lots of electricity. So they didn't want efficient energy use. They'd like everybody to use energy highly in, in a highly inefficient way, so they'd sell lots of it, right? And then they'd make lots and lots of money. People recognized that perverse incentive, and so they created decoupling to provide an incentive for those utilities to encourage conservation. The same thing is true in water. Now, the water sector has been much slower to adopt con uh, decoupling. If you look around the country and the private uh, regulated sector, well more than half, I want to say more than 30 states have decoupling for electricity and or gas. But only two states currently have a decoupling law in place for water, and that's New York and, and California. So uh, it's it's been slower to, to take root in the water sector, but the same basic concept applies. Um, you want to encourage efficiency, you want to encourage conservation, uh, and if you unless you apply some means of decoupling, there's no incentive for the utility uh, to pursue those things. Okay, terrific. So, can you speak a little in terms of how how a decoupling rate mechanism would be implemented or how it works? Sure. Well, the best, the best example is California, because as it says, one of two states that, that applies it. So, the way it works is that uh, in, this only applies, by the way, it only applies to investor-owned utilities. Uh, the way it works is that uh, if I go uh, to the Public Utilities Commission and say I need to raise a million dollars in uh, rate revenue from this community over here, great, they approve my rates, and then we, ha we head into the year and it pours rain all summer and people don't irrigate their lawns. Uh, so I had a volumetric rate structure. People aren't buying my water to irrigate their lawns uh, because it's, it's raining. Uh, and so I don't sell as much water as I expected. I only sell, I only get $900,000 of revenue instead of a million. So I'm $100,000 short. What decoupling does is it allows me go, to go back to the Utilities Commission the next year and say, look, I came up $100,000 short, and I did it because I had these volumetric rates that were encouraging conservation. Uh, can I please add that $100,000 back next year to my next year's rates? Under a decoupling system, the Utilities Commission would say, yes, you can add that $100,000 back, and you can earn that money back the following year. Without decoupling, the Utilities Commission would say, sorry, Manny, guess you're out $100,000. So the lesson I would take without decoupling is, gosh, I shouldn't try to encourage efficiency at all. I should set my rates um, to be mostly fixed, maybe not volumetric at all, or if they're going to be volumetric, they're not going to be very progressive. Maybe I'll have a declining block rate structure or something like that. Decoupling provides an incentive for me to, uh, to conserve. What's fascinating in California is technically all rates are decoupled in California. There is nothing to stop a public sector utility from doing exactly the same thing. A local government that is not governed by the Public Utilities Commission can use decoupling just as well. 
you know, they can set prices whatever they whatever way they like. And if they come up short because of conservation, which sometimes they do, they are perfectly free to go back and raise their rates the following year to make up the shortfall. The fascinating thing in California is that the private sector has been much more has been consistently more conservative that with water than the public sector and i i put that mostly to a decoupling because in the public sector even though they're technically able to do so it's politically very costly to do so right right and so you know that's one of the the things in terms of conservation rates that i there was a consultant i used to work with uh, who always said, you know, you need to be careful with conservation rates because they might work. Um, and, and, you know, in, in terms of uh, over, I think what would, you see these news articles all the time coming out of California, like, you know, rates are going up because people didn't use enough water. And so people are saying, what if we did our part, we conserved. Now you're penalizing me. You know, how do you, how do you, what are the strategies for dealing with that kind of blame avoidance credit claiming paradigm that you kind of indicated earlier in the, in, in terms of conservation? Yeah, it's well, <laughs> one, one approach is to, to privatize your utility because uh, <laughs> state utilities commissioners are not as sensitive to, pol- uh, to political complaints uh, and public complaints. Um, that's, a little bit facetious, but not really. I mean, uh, it, it's not a coincidence that we see better conservation outcomes uh, in the private sector. More seriously, if you're looking for a way to manage this problem, it's really with cash reserves. One of the things that utilities can do is keep larger cash reserves to manage those ups and downs, kind of like somebody manages their own personal finance, maybe you you keep a significant amount of savings. If you work in the kind of job, let's say you work a commission-based job, right? You've got a job where you work on sales commissions. Some days you have, sometimes you might have a good month, sometimes you might have a bad month. If that's the kind of job you've got, it's smart to keep a large cash balance in the bank so that on a in a good month um, you're fine, but in a bad month you've got some cash reserves to draw down, and then when you have a good month again, you put more money back into that account, and you can sort of balance things out over time. Local governments could do the same thing, or public utilities can do the same thing. Leave a, leave a cash stabilization fund, uh, a rate stabilization fund in place, and many utilities do that. What's funny about those stabilization accounts, though, is once they're established, oftentimes utilities are actually reluctant to use them, right? So I set aside the rainy day fund. In this case, it's literally a rainy day fund. It rains. I don't sell any water, and now I I need that money. Uh, And and then people will say, well, we can't touch that because that's our rainy day fund. And I'll look at them and say, well, it's raining. Uh, Maybe you ought to go ahead and use that. So it, it, it's, it's, sometimes it's a matter of management. The other problem with, with cash reserves from utilities perspectives is that in the public sector, they sometimes draw some unwelcome attention. If I, go to my, if I manage a utility, I go to my elected officials and I say, look, I need a 10% rate increase over the next two years because we need to make an investment. They're going to look at my books and they'll say, Manny, you got $20 million sitting in the bank over there. Why do you need a rate increase? I'll say, well, that's my rate stabilization fund. Yeah, we need that there to keep to keep revenues stable in case we have fluctuations in demand. They'll say, well, okay. Tell you what, you spend down that twenty million dollars and then come to us and ask for a rate increase. 
Well, that sort of defeats the purpose of the stabilization fund. So it's even though stabilization accounts are difficult in the public sector for the same political reasons, it all comes back to rate making. So I think we need to come up with some more creative ways to address this problem. Uh, the public, you know, the water sector has been slow to adopt things like weather insurance. I think that's an interesting possibility that uh, has been used in the energy sector for a long time. Uh, for some reason, it hasn't ever really taken off in the water sector. There could be ways for utilities to pool their resources um, to develop stabilization kinds of mechanisms. I think we need to take a look at some of those approaches uh, in order to, to get these, to, to, to sort of balance these good things. We want efficiency. We want conservation. We want affordability, and we want uh, revenue stability. I think it is possible to do all of those things, but we just need to, to be a little more creative in the way we do it. Awesome. Well, M Manny, you've been terrific today. I I have really enjoyed this conversation. I wish we could go on, I, but we've, we're already well over the time. <laughs> I promised that we'd spend with you. I, you know, before we before we sign off here, uh, do you have a leave behind message? What haven't I asked you that you think is important that you want to get across to the audience? It's, we're really in an unusual moment. You know, I've been working in the water sector for more than 20 years. And certainly in my lifetime, I have not seen this kind of attention to water infrastructure issues. Uh, we've got politicians at the national level talking about these issues. You don't have to be a political scientist to know that when ambitious politicians are talking about an issue, especially one that's as out of sight and out of mind as water infrastructure, something special is happening. So I think my, my leave behind message is that we are really at a, at a generational moment. We have an unusual opportunity to make significant investments in, and more importantly, structural changes to the way we do water in this country. And so I, I hope that folks who are working in the water sector will take an opportunity to think carefully, think deeply, and, and most of all, think big. Think about what it is that we want to do, because opportunities like this don't come, off, uh, come along very often. The last one was in the early 70s. We got the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act. And those were monumental uh, changes to the water sector in America. I think we're at potentially another moment just like that. So we need to seize that moment and and make it matter. Terrific. I, uh, you got my endorsement on that. Um, so uh, last question, Manny, for those people who want to find out more about you and uh, your work, where can they go to get that information? Sure. I, I have a personal website. It's mannyteodoro.com. I blog there a couple times a month about water-related issues. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at mpteodoro. Good deal. Well, thank you so much, Manny. Really appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Dave. We'll talk soon. All right. All right bye. Bye. Well, I told you you were going to like that interview with Manny Teodoro. He was fantastic, and I wish I would have kept the um, I wish I would have kept the uh, the recorder going because we had a fantastic discussion afterwards about P threes and other uh, elements of the water industry. And so I, I think Manny, we're going to have you if you're if you're willing, we'll have you back on campus, so to speak, uh, to uh, talk more about water governance issues, P threes, things of that nature. So I really look forward to that uh, in the future and. Again, just savor this episode because Manny was absolutely fantastic. Well, I want to hear know what you found interesting about this article. Please leave me a note on the sh comment on the show notes. You can find that at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 
150. That's P-O-D 150. Or you can email me at David at the water values.com. You can tweet at me at my handle, which is at DTM one nine nine three. And you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. And again, please do me a favor. Please rate review the podcast on whatever uh, podcast directory you're using, whether that's Apple podcast, Stitcher, tune in Himalaya, Castbox, uh, whatever you're, you're, listening on, please consider leaving a uh, rating and review. Just a great way for people to find out the, find out about the podcast. And you can sign up for the Water Values newsletter uh, at thewatervalues.com. You can also go to LinkedIn and join the LinkedIn group. I really haven't publicized that, but, you know, I, I noticed that uh, people are starting to join that. So um, thank you much for that. Uh, well, again, uh, a reminder, I will not be podcasting in July, uh, so look for the next episode to drop first Tuesday of August. So thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. Hope you all have a wonderful summer. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.